With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in extraordinary. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. These days, what could reasonably be called a space race is being run by billionaires. Today, it's Amazon supremo Jeff Bezos taking off. But there's another, quieter trend going on in orbit. African countries are launching left and right. And Australia is being hit by a crippling plague of mice. The critters tend to come and go with cycles of drought and rain. But this time around, they're back in force, nibbling at crops, at grain stores, and even at people in their beds. But first... The Chinese government stands accused of involvement in a global hacking campaign. What's notable is who is doing the accusing. America and its Five Eyes intelligence partners, Canada, Britain, Australia and New Zealand, as well as the European Union, Japan and NATO. In a statement released on Monday, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said, quote, The United States and countries around the world are holding the People's Republic of China accountable for its pattern of irresponsible, disruptive and destabilizing behavior in cyberspace, which poses a major threat to our economic and national security. The coalition's charges come after a huge attack on Microsoft earlier this year that affected tens of thousands of organizations. President Joe Biden accused China's Ministry of State Security of, at the very least, complicity in the hacking. My understanding is that the Chinese government, not unlike the Russian government, is not doing this themselves, but are protecting those who are doing it, and maybe even accommodating them being able to do it. That may be the difference. Thank you. The Allies have spoken with one voice. The question now is what action may follow and whether any of it will stem the tide of Chinese cyber mischief. This story has two parts. John Prido is our United States editor and the host of Checks and Balance, our sister show on American politics. There's a geopolitics part in which America and its allies are confronting China in what's a fairly rare show of unity, and it has a cyber attack part, the more obvious part of the story. I think together, this is quite a big deal. Why do you say that? It's unusual for such a coordinated statement to come from Western allies. And on the cyber part, that statement wouldn't have been put together unless the US government and the other signatories to that statement, if you like, had a really high level of confidence that Chinese hackers were behind this attack. Well, uh, let's start with that cybersecurity part. What is China accused of doing exactly? Well, Jason, back in March, Microsoft announced publicly that its exchange servers, which power email for about 30,000 organizations, had been attacked 
by hackers. And at that time, Microsoft's own internal cybersecurity department identified those hacks as coming from China. So we know that this hack occurred, and we know that it affected a lot of companies. And we had a pretty high level of certainty already that the hacking groups were based in China. And so what's happened now is that the US, the EU, the Five Eyes intelligence agencies, so that's the UK and the US and New Zealand and Australia and Canada, plus NATO, have all come together and said, we know that this attack came from groups within China. And the implication of the statement, I think, is that even though these attacks may not have been directed by the Chinese Communist Party, the fact that they were allowed to happen in a country where not all that much happens without the Communist Party say-so has been deemed unacceptable and called out publicly in a way that's pretty unusual. And about that, what do you make of the fact that so many Western allies got on board with this? It's surprising. I mean, even Britain, which likes to stick pretty close to America in these things, has only pointed the finger at the Chinese state twice for its cyber espionage. So this this would be the second time. The EU in particular tends to take a much sort of gentler, more emollient stance to all things Chinese. So the fact that the EU has joined this is pretty striking. Western intelligence agencies have said that this behavior by China was a lot more serious than anything they've seen before. And the Biden administration is eager to show that its China policy is both tougher and more successful than the Trump administration's foreign policy because the administration is happy to work with allies and because it has better relationships with allies than the Trump administration does. And so as far as American foreign policy goes and American China policy goes, I think you have to say that this is a notable success. A success how, though? I mean, what, besides calling out these cyber attacks as state-condoned, if not full-on state-sponsored, what's going on here? What's the threat? I think you're right to be a bit sceptical, Jason. I mean, when Barack Obama was president, he raised cyber hacking with Xi Jinping, and there was an understanding that both countries would lay off each other when it came to these kinds of cyber attacks. That hasn't happened, and so you have to wonder whether this more public approach is going to be more effective. There are no sanctions for now. This is not like the cyber attacks perpetrated by Russian hackers, possibly with complicity of the Russian government there, where we saw America put on sanctions against members of the Russian government. But with cyber attacks, there's always a sort of implicit threat of retaliation. And America has not only very strong capacities when it comes to cyber defense and the sort of attribution of cyber attacks coming in, but also is very capable in the other direction if it needs to be. But what do you make of that distinction? I mean, the, the American administration has very much threatened to, to retaliate directly, and there's not a hint of that here. I suppose there are a few things you could make of it, Jason. One thing might be that China is not Russia. It's a lot harder to change the behavior of China's government or of Chinese hackers than it is of, of the Russian government or, or Russian hackers, or at least to try. You know, the, the cost to America of placing sanctions on lots of Russian officials is, is pretty low, frankly, because Russia is a far, far less important economic power than China. Another thing you might say is, you know, perhaps the presence of all these allies, you know, the United Front, perhaps that weakens any possible sanction. So how has China responded to this, this statement? And as unusual as it is, do you think it will have any meaningful effect? 
On the Chinese response first, various Chinese embassies around the world have issued statements rejecting the allegations, calling them groundless. The Chinese embassy in Australia described America as the world champion of malicious cyber attacks. In terms of the impact on China's cybersecurity activities, cyber attacks, I think there's a cat and mouse game going on and that when attacks are detected and accurately attributed, then the attackers become more sophisticated. I think China and America for the moment are locked in this competition and that cyber is one area where they can confront each other without actually going to war. And so I think that will continue. And then I suppose the question is whether this broad alliance of Western countries can stick together when confronting these kind of cyber attacks. The Biden administration will be hoping that they've set a precedent here and that the next time a Chinese group attacks a big business like Microsoft based in one of the countries that's signed up to this rebuke against China, you know, there'll be a sense of, well, all of us have been attacked. So it's really an attempt to build this kind of solidarity between allies. And on the more pointed question of of relations between China and America, America's China doctrine, I suppose, you've been thinking about this a lot and and covered it, in fact, in your own show, the most recent episode of Checks and Balance. Yes, the current cover of The Economist is on the Biden-China doctrine. And so in the podcast, we looked at what Biden's China policy is and how it differs from Obama's and differs from Donald Trump's as well. We looked a bit at how thinking on China has changed in America since 2000, become much more confrontational. And also we looked a little bit, Jason, at how uh, young Chinese people perceive America. So if that sounds interesting to you, then please do go and check out the podcast, Checks and Balance, wherever you get your podcasts. I absolutely will. John, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Today, Jeff Bezos is set to blast into space, or at least to the edge of it, bringing the dream of commercial spaceflight one step closer for the ultra-wealthy. The Amazon founder follows Richard Branson, who pipped Mr. Bezos earlier this month when he grazed the cosmos in his Virgin Galactic rocket plane. The high-profile battle of the billionaire space cadets is heating up, but in the wider space industry, new entrants are lifting off all the time. Five, four, three, two, one. Last month, on board a SpaceX resupply rocket to the International Space Station, was a satellite from the small island country of Mauritius. Tunisia, too, put its first satellite into orbit this year. We have the lift off of this beautiful rocket. And another five African countries launched their firsts in 2019. Ignore for a moment the adventures of the likes of Mr. Branson and Mr. Bezos. The business opportunities in space lead to broad innovation and investment on the ground. Africa seems to be off like a rocket. 
Just two decades ago, African space programs were nearly non-existent. Guy Kiddy writes for The Economist. South Africa launched the region's first satellite in 1999. That was the work of students at Stellenbosch University. It was a modest effort. That spacecraft was very cheap and it hitched a free ride on a NASA rocket. But things have progressed in leaps and bounds since then. How so? When did Africa start to really have a space presence? Well, one really key moment was back in 2005, and that was the year of Hurricane Katrina, of course. The magnitude of responding to a crisis over a disaster area that is larger than the size of Great Britain has created tremendous problems that have strained state and local capabilities. It was a small Nigerian satellite, only the second to be launched by an African country, that beamed back the first pictures and that enabled the disaster response to be planned. Now, the world took notice of that. Some British politicians and taxpayers' pressure groups wanted to cut off development aid. Their reasoning was that if Nigeria could afford a space programme, it didn't need development support. But that Nigerian satellite only cost around $13 million, which is a sliver of what a satellite normally costs. And so what happened since then? How did it really start to spread? Well, African countries have launched many more satellites since then. There are currently around 41 in orbit. And one consultancy called Space in Africa estimates that African governments budgeted around $500 million for their space agencies in 2020. That's a sliver of the $23 billion spent last year by NASA, but it's up on the $325 million that African states spent in 2019. So these programs are growing quickly. Now, it's worth noting that these figures don't include private investment. There's a company called Utelsat, for example, which is a European operator, and they beam communications down and receive communications from African countries for the use of the private sector and governments. And so why is it then that African governments are going all in on space? Well, they argue that their investments in space programs help to build local skills, that these programs have knock-on effects for the overall economy. We've committed to investing in what is called a knowledge-based economy and really looking at knowledge-based institutions, of which the space agency is one, as the uh, platform for increased economic uh, development for South Africa. The Indian government had the same argument in the late 70s and early 80s, and there was a lot of whinging from the international community then about how can a poor country afford to be spending money on space when many of its citizens can't afford to eat. But the knock-on effects are very, very real, and a good example is the Square Kilometre Array, which is an internationally funded radio telescope being built in South Africa. That's pulling in about $2.3 billion of investment and is creating thousands of jobs. It's a great inspiration to youngsters, but it's also leading, for example, to a great expansion of internet infrastructure in South Africa. And those knock-on effects and inspiring young people and so on, that must surely have been true since the beginning of the commercial space industry. Why is Africa cottoning onto this now? I spoke to somebody from the African Union about this, and she said there were three main reasons. There's the economic opportunity, there's the sake of technological independence, and then there's a geopolitical argument. The economic opportunity is possible now just because space is becoming more accessible to an increasing number of players. Everybody knows about Elon Musk, but below that are very many small companies and investors experimenting with much smaller projects. But there's also, as I say, the geopolitical argument. If you are a small country, typically you're buying in all of your space services from a superpower. And that might be okay if you're in the sphere of NATO. But if you're an African country, then it's potentially a bit more risky and a bit more dangerous to be beholden to Chinese satellite information or Russian satellite information. Really because we all rely on space all day, every day to do everything from 
use Google Maps to do bank transactions, even power grids are synchronized by satellites. And there's a broader philosophical point too, if you like. In the 90s, a lot of manufacturing moved from rich countries to poorer ones in Asia. African countries couldn't capitalize on that move because their economies just weren't developed enough. Now there's an opportunity for some significant economic development, for capturing the economic zeitgeist, and no African nation wants to miss out on that opportunity. Guy, thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Australians share their country with some of the most fearsome predators on Earth. But for Cody Brady, a farmer in New South Wales, it's a more timorous beastie that's proving the most trouble. So my house is absolutely sealed, like a submarine. Like, you know, I've got rubber around my doorways and underneath, and, you know, we don't open our windows at all. Over the past six months, Australia has been struggling to contain a plague of mice. They're destroying crops, munching through stockpiles, and infesting houses. Yeah, I don't sleep um, because I'm paranoid. You know, you can hear them in your walls and your roof, and your social and emotional well-being is shot. You know, I'm just wearing down from it. The mouse plague currently gripping Australia is one of the worst on record. Matthew Williams writes for The Economist. The rodents are particularly numerous in New South Wales and the southeast of the country, and they have been quite the nuisance. They've been ravaging crops, infesting houses, schools, supermarkets, and hospitals. And for those who are particularly squeamish about rodents, they have even taken to biting people in their beds and inhabiting people's clothes. Um, But more seriously, though, the economic damage has been quite considerable. Um, The mouse plague has caused... 100 million Australian dollars in damaged crops and grain stores so far, and um, farmers and government officials are really struggling to contain the crisis in that part of uh, Australia. So why are things so bad? The main reason is the weather. Studies have shown a tendency for major mouse plagues to hit Australia after a prolonged or severe drought. And the possible explanation theorised by academics is that Once weather conditions improve after a period of severe drought, the short reproduction cycle of mice means their numbers can bounce back much faster than those of their predators. This time round in 2021, after two years of drought and devastating bushfires, which have already caused farmers a huge amount of stress, heavy rains have allowed grain growers to plant the largest area of winter crop ever recorded. And this bumper harvest has created ideal conditions for a mass breeding season amongst the mice. And that's why this particular year has been one of the worst on record for Australia. And so what's being done to to combat it? Well, the government is actually struggling to contain it. As a result, uh, New South Wales is um, seeking the federal government's approval to use Brougham Dye alone a poison that is normally banned in Australia. So the farmers would be able to lace the bait over large tracts of land by drone and tractor, and this poison would kill the mice en masse. The danger is is that the poison could find its way into the food chain, harming domestic pets, native birds, livestock, and fish that ingest the poison or the dead mice being killed off by the farmers. And this poison has got animal charities and activists extremely concerned. And barring that extreme solution, is there anything else that can be done? 
Basically, the farmers are wasting it out. The Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization, a government research agency, is unsure whether this plague is like to last for one or two years, potentially. If it is the former, the mouse population will drop sharply when the rodents stop breeding over the winter months of June to August and will not recover, basically. But if it is the latter, numbers will plateau over the winter and will pick up again in spring when they breed again. So if that is the case, farmers who are already on their knees after years of drought, bushfires, and this record-breaking mouse plague will have to wait until spring to find out whether the rodents will return next year. Matthew, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in Extraordinary.